welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Welcome to the OnFIF podcast. I am Ellie Groves from OnFIF, and in this podcast, we will be looking at the current macro environment and the impact on reserve managers and management. We will discuss future trends as well as concerns around inflation, which we currently see. Will there be a shift in the global financial infrastructure or will the world settle and institutions can see through the current high inflation? Joining me is Max Castelli, Head of Strategy, Global Sovereign Markets at UBS Asset, and Neil Williams, Chief Economist at Omfer, who will be here to tackle these difficult questions. So both thank you very much for joining us. I get the uh, easier job of just asking the questions and reflecting on the points that you both bring in. Uh, I want to start with you, Neil, please. Could you outline the key macro trends we are seeing today? And then I will go to you, Max. But Neil, please. Well, certainly. Well, well, most of the large economies, this is the good news, most of the large economies have now pretty much reclaimed the path they were on um, after the global crisis and going uh, into the start of COVID in 2019. The, the difference is that it's been a game of two halves. Between 2009 and 2020, that recovery was pretty much all activity driven. But last year, uh, it was as much inflation as it was activity. So, so why are central bank assets and balance sheets still so bloated? Uh, and just to throw a couple of numbers at you, the, the, the injection into the system we've had from QE since 2008 uh, at about $20 trillion is still pretty much uh, still in the private sector, uh, which it means the equivalent of about 90% of the US economy uh, or about three quarters of the world's central bank assets uh, are still in place uh, in such, such a short time. And of course, there's no coincidence this liquidity has been added uh, while the debt pile has gone up. Uh, and if we look at um, the, the UK, the US's and the euro areas, government debt to GDP ratios, um, they are higher than Japan's was when Japan limped into its lost decade in the mid 1990s. So the difference this time uh, is that central banks themselves have skin in the game. If they take us off guard, uh, they themselves will, will feel the pain. So this really sort of opens a couple of questions for, uh, for reserve managers. One is, uh, with all that debt in local currency, uh, should the, um, the printing presses remain on? Um, if interest rates and quantitative tightening, though, are in prospect, what are the unintended consequences? Uh, thirdly, what does COVID and more recently, of course, this tragic war uh, mean for inflation fighting? Does it give extra urgency to it uh, or does it, does it throw a spanner in the works uh, for central banks? And finally, what can reserve managers do uh, to both adjust uh, and to prepare? Thank you very much, Neil. And I'm going to take that final question. You're already doing my job for me. This is uh, this is very uh, it's excellent. So, Max, please, could you uh, enlighten us a little bit on your your view on the macro trends you're seeing and how this is reflected? You've just done a survey on reserve managers and asking these key pertinent questions. So it'd be very good to hear your thoughts and reflections on the those questions that Neil has just raised. Thank you very much, uh, Ellie, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Neil, of course, uh, for the kind introduction. Also, it's nice to be once again uh, on a podcast of uh, ONFIF. Indeed, uh, we just uh, finished last week our uh, annual conference, and I say this with pride because after two years of virtual events, we were finally able to have uh, once again an event in person, and uh, 
we had a very good attendance uh, from all around the world, and this is very important uh, to be back in uh, human interaction rather than virtual. And you're absolutely right. We also carry out our uh, annual survey of uh, research manager before the event over the period of April to June. We had uh, more than 30 responses from central banks. And actually, we tend to go more for quality rather than quantity, so we tend to cover especially the central banks with large reserve uh, and uh, the ones that are more diversified, if you want, in uh, global capital markets. And this year, uh, as usual, we ask a fundamental question uh, on the macro and the investment level. We ask in particular the first two questions, which always give a little bit of a view of where the concern now what are the major concerns on the macro level and what are the major concerns uh, as far as the reserve, man reserve management is concerned? And in both cases here, we have uh, for the first time inflation and, uh, and or the uncontrolled rise in long-term yields as the major concern. Just to put things into perspective, last year, the major concern as far as effects uh, reserve management is concerned was still uh, low yield or negative yields. So just to give you an idea how the agenda has shifted in a matter of a year with inflation definitely taking uh, uh, the central uh, role in the minds of uh, reserve manager. And uh, what also, uh, and the inflation was also the late motive of the whole conference. In any panel where we discussed this topic from different angles, there was a very lively debate about whether the current rise in inflation is uh, just uh, is just, is a transitory, maybe this transition is much longer than what was expected one year ago, or instead, if uh, we are moving into a completely uh, new regime of which uh, higher inflation will be one uh, of the main future. I'm sure we will go back to this topic towards the end uh, of this conversation. What also uh, is remarkable is, uh, for instance, the fact that the new risks uh, were, were included in the top three. Let me mention, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the geopolitical risk, of course, surrounding uh, the conflict in Ukraine and the U.S.-China confrontation. This risk was not perceived as very high one year ago. Of course, the war was not still there. And uh, as well, the commodity price and, in general, energy security has also been mentioned by uh, the majority or by a high number of participants to the survey. So definitely a very uh, evolving and shifting geopolitical picture and as well as economic picture. So to go back to the question that Neil asked, what are uh, reserve managers doing in this current environment? And uh, let me mention just a few takeaways from uh, the question which are more related to the, to the management of reserve themselves. The first one is that uh, if you look at, for instance, uh, at uh, central banks, they have been very active in uh, revising uh, their strategic asset allocation. So more than half mentioned that they did some change. And, uh, and what is also more important, that more than 65% or around 65% indicated that they wish to implement uh, further change to their asset allocation over the next uh, uh, 12 months. This is something very, very important. The second main takeaway is that uh, despite the uncertainty surrounding the geopolitical situation and, of course, the uncertainty surrounding interest rates, the diversification trends, which has been a powerful trend among the reserve manager over the last, uh, I would say, two decades, actually does not appear to have slowed down. We had, for instance, just to give you some number, we saw 
the eligibility of uh, equity as an investment at the all-time high of 50%. So this means, that according to our survey, one central bank in two can actually invest in listed equity. This is remarkable. The second is that, of course, we see uh, uh, definitely interest for certain asset classes which provide some uh, protection. For instance, we have uh, things like inflation-linked bonds, supranational, and as well a growing and continuing interest for green bonds when we talk about sustainability. Finally, maybe the last point to mention on the currency, we are also seeing, of course, the impact of rising yield in the U.S., with a very strong demand for US dollar. And on the other end, we still see the attraction of the RMB relatively strong, which appear to continue is a steady growth from a very low level, but steady growth towards a leading reserve currency status. And then of course, uh, but we, I don't know if we want to talk a little bit later, we had a special about the impact of sanction, but maybe I will reserve that for later when we talk more about the evolving geopolitical situation. I think so. So let's definitely come back to the wider geopolitical situation and we can perhaps end the discussion on that. Uh, but before I do, I wanted to ask uh, specifically Neil to come in on some of the the, the things you were mentioning at the beginning, Max, around the inflation expectations and the transitory nature. So some central banks, uh, the, the ECB, are still holding to projections of inflation stabilizing at 2% from next year, I believe. And they are, are they right to see through this, uh, see through this inflation or should they be more aggressively hawkish? So instead of going back to normalization, where do you think the, the natural rate of interest rates should be? to reflect the, the inflation expectations? Or do you think that this is indeed a more cyclical and transitory in its nature? Or, or actually, how much can central banks do to uh, affect the inflation that we currently see? Yes, it was interesting that Max was saying that, uh, that the risk on trade was very much a feature from the survey for last year. And it would be interesting to see the extent to which that changes for this year. Uh, clearly, that will change uh, in the opposite direction if uh, reserve managers believe that central banks are going to become more aggressive on interest rate rises than is currently priced in. My, my own feeling on this is that central banks, on the one hand, are trying hard now to get back their cherished policy tool, uh, their main policy rate, uh, for want of addressing any future downturns. Uh, but the big dilemma they now face uh, is whether or not they have the right sort of inflation, in inverted commas, caused by demand and overheating, the old fashioned sort that I can certainly uh, remember, uh, or the wrong sort, which is predominantly cost led, uh, for example, uh, led by energy and other costs that tend to hit us in the pocket for which we're not paid. So if central banks uh, go beyond the pale in that respect and continue blindly to uh, raise interest rates, the quid pro quo clearly is going to be a sharper slowdown uh, in disposable income and growth uh, than uh, many at this point are expecting. It seems to me, though, that central banks are actually in a very strong position because they now have two levers to push uh, interest rates upwards gradually. But at the same time, to take away some of the heavy lifting, they could now address more uh, more actively quantitative tightening to try to get that balance sheet down. And what would what would the benefit be? Well, the benefit essentially would be to allow peak rates or, or interest rates to peak out lower than they otherwise would do. Secondly, to give markets the impression that they are not behind the curve. And thirdly, because then that would begin to chip away at the downside of QE that I think we've all experienced 
uh, in terms of bloated asset prices uh, and suppressed saving. So I, I like to think, and hopefully I'm not being naive, that central banks will see through this, Eddie, as you suggest, will go easy on interest rates and at the same time behind the scenes more actively will start to chip away at that balance sheet. I want to touch on that balance sheet, if I can uh, go back to you, Max. And one of the points you you made and you found out through through your survey and through talking to the reserve managers is that, as you say, there's still a move towards uh, potentially riskier assets and to diversifying their portfolio. Why do you think this is? Uh, and do you think that this trend will continue into the future? Obviously, we saw it last year. I remember having you on a podcast uh, with David Marsh and yourself, I believe, early, either earlier this year or, or end of last year. And that was very much the trend as well as around moving towards diversification. So what in this uncertain world, there hasn't been a, a flight back to safety, as it were, or is my interpretation incorrect? And uh, please do offer you some thoughts there. Well, when we when we do the survey, we also ask some question about uh, the interest rate outlook. And let me just give you maybe some numbers because I think you give an indication of uh, part explain sorry why reserve managers remain pretty uh, diversified in the current environment despite the uncertainty. When we ask where do you see the terminal Fed policy rate in this hiking cycle? About uh, the majority, 36%, believe it to be in uh, the range of 325 to 3.5%. And another 32% believe it to be between 275 and 3%. So this uh, would for sure be a substantial change compared to the zero interest rate level we are coming from. But I would still define this as a sort of a normalization in interest rates. Actually, if you look at what are the current expectations of the markets, the market actually believe that this is the level where the Fed will eventually pause and that this will be enough uh, to put uh, inflation under control. So that's the first point. So in a way, if I can uh, put this number into qualitative terms, the reserve manager responding to our surfer, they still believe that ultimately the uh, central banks will succeed with the announced uh, interest rate hikes to put uh, inflation under control. So I would say that uh, they are probably falling into the longer transition camp, if, if we may say so. On the other end, if you believe instead that we are in a regime shift where we are going to be moving into a world long term, medium long term, characterized by a higher inflation rate, I think this is going to be a different picture because, of course, uh, probably rates will have to be rise more than what the market and also the reserve manager expect. And we are also going to see uh, much higher long-term interest rates. So in the, this is a little bit the context where this debate is framed. From an investment perspective, there, is, uh, uh, there are also other important factors which explain why central banks have, become, have remained diversified. First of all, we should not forget that this is the first time that central banks, the one which diversified, for instance, into equity, like any other investor who adopt a balanced portfolio approach to their portfolio construction, they actually, for the first time, lost, uh, had the negative return both on the equity and the fixed income side. So both legs of the portfolio basically came down. That's something that we define in our jargon that the correlation between these two asset classes has started positive from negative, as it was the case uh, 
before uh, the, uh, um, the interest rate hiking cycle started. But also, I think it reflects something very important that we should not forget. Reserve managers have been diversifying now for a very long time, and they, are, they have become, um, I would say, more sophisticated type of investor in the sense that compared to maybe a decade ago, when they were largely invested into fixed income only. Nowadays, they actually invest across a wide range of asset classes, and they learn to experience that diversification actually pave off. And I believe that they want to maintain this diversification as we continue moving into this uncertain world. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if actually, and we also uh, uh, detect that in the survey, if we're going to see more diversification eventually also outside uh, the traditional uh, listed uh, liquid asset classes like equity and fixed income. So I think uh, that's probably a very important factor behind uh, the diversification story continuing among uh, central banks. Thank you very much. I see Neil nodding along. I know that on a podcast you can't see that, but so I will articulate that we have a nod from Neil there. So I want to go into a little bit of the conversation of picking up on your second point, Max, when you were talking about uh, currencies and uh, the the role of the RNB and the US dollar. Do you see changes in currency reserves and how how will this impact perhaps the, the geopolitical landscapes as well? And how is this impacted by the geopolitical landscape? So, Neil, if I go to you with the geopolitical landscape question and then Max a little bit more flavor from your survey, that would be very helpful. So, Neil. Yeah, which is a great point. And uh, the survey, I think, I think suggests that the, the Remembi is very much still in the ascendancy. Um, and maybe surprisingly in the survey, the, the dollar less so. Maybe that's as a result. Um, but um, it, it, you know, the, the question is, I suppose, the risk, I suppose, is what could now work against that? Let's say, for example, if China uh, does slow uh, below any sort of growth target. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly sceptical of that, firstly, because China, it seems to me, of the G8 economies is the one that can find extra levers to pull to keep growth going. It tends to do stuff we can't do, such as bring forward infrastructure plans and raise agricultural subsidies to get close to that hallowed uh, growth target. Uh, but also from China's side, uh, should there be now, let's say, going forward, a darker geopolitical uh, environment, maybe as the, the blame game comes in or geopolitics uh, strengthens, it still seems to me that uh, it's in both sides' interest to keep the ship going. Why is that? Well, there's a sort of an uneasy symbiosis between the U.S. and China, of course, because the U.S. Uh, buys, uh, still buys uh, Chinese goods and China still buys uh, U.S. debt. And China is the biggest uh, international holder with Japan of China's treasuries, I think to the tune of about 1.1 trillion or about 17 percent of total overseas holdings. Uh, given that position, A, if they sold those, they would shoot themselves in the foot in terms of their own uh, asset allocation. Uh, but secondly, uh, if, let's say, the U.S. were to slap on extra tariffs going forward, China would probably meet some of that by letting the renminbi slip. But it can't do so because that would raise the debt obligations of its own corporates and banks whose debt is in dollars. So therefore, they would have to dip into their reserves, a fairly healthy $3.1 trillion. I wish I had that in my pocket. Um, in which case, the signal they would be sending to Bond World is that they would no longer be recycling to the same extent those dollars into, guess what, U.S. Treasuries. And what drives U.S. mortgage rates? It tends to be U.S. Treasury rates. So a long winded answer to a great question. But it just seemed to me that it's in their mutual interest between them 
uh, to keep uh, this symbiosis going, uh, in which case the renminbi may, may continue to gain an ascendancy for diversification basis uh, reasons, uh, but uh, it, there's good reason, at least logic suggests, for there not to be a shock between those two currencies going forward, unless I'm missing something. Thank you, Neil. I'm sure uh, you're absolutely not missing something. So I, that was a very articulate overview. So thank you for that insight. Max, do you have any, what would you add to this and also the the trends that you've seen throughout your survey? Let's start from the survey results so just to put a little bit of numbers uh, into the conversation. So First of all, uh, on the dollar, definitely the dollar uh, was the most frequently mentioned currency when we ask which currency do you think you're going to hold more. And this is, of course, of course, a reflection of the fact that the yields in the U.S. dollar denominated asset has, been, uh, has increased quite substantially. So it's, from a purely investment perspective, it's pretty obvious the U.S. dollar is the, the one who benefits most from the rising yields as far as uh, the composition of reserve is concerned. However, the renminbi was the second most frequently mentioned currency. And I would also like to mention that uh, the so-called non-traditional reserve currency, like uh, the Canadian, the Australian dollars, but also in Asia, for instance, the Korean one, are gaining ground in terms of uh, their share of uh, total reserve. What is interesting as well is that the euro, which was an, uh, last year on a sort of a recovery, probably also on the back of the fiscal of the EU Next Generation Fund, which in some way further curbed the, the fears that this, uh, you, uh, you, the eurozone is a sort of a difficult economy to manage because of the lack of fiscal integration. The point is that what we see is a continuation of the trends that we've been seeing going on for years now, which is a steady fall in the share of US dollar, which has been a long-term trend, which apparently is continuing in the sense that there is more diversification away from the dollar. And the, the one which to benefit most from this diversification are the, the, the RMB and a few other secondary currency. Just very important to keep in mind, we also ask a question about what is the average long-term target allocation for the RMB in the, in the breakout of the reserve by currency. And this uh, has been a steady increase. For instance, we now reach 5.8%, which is substantially higher than what, for instance, comes out from historical data, which is the COFER IMF data which is still uh, much lower than this 5.8%. So this indicates that uh, the RMB is continuing its low steady march towards a growing share of global effects reserve. Of course, uh, the investment side is important. And uh, as uh, US yields rise, uh, actually RMB yields fall. This basically cancels almost entirely the interest rate differential in favor of the US dollar, which we had at the beginning of the year. This, uh, however, we should uh, think that this also has another side of the coin. If you look at the performance of fixed income market, in particular government bond market year to date, the, actually the RMB is the only market where we saw a positive return, of course, as a result of falling yields, because China is, of course, dealing with a slowing economy and is trying to use all its monetary and fiscal tool to, to, to boost 
to boost growth. I believe that there is another element, which is, of course, the, the sanction, but I guess we leave that for the end, right? So I don't want to take away all the excitement about that topic in a moment. I will come back on that. Thank you, Max. I'm going to come back to you, actually, and ask you about the, the new drivers and, and the, new, uh, the new trends that we see. I would like to elaborate a little bit on CBDCs. So do you, have you seen a move towards CBDCs? What are the drivers pushing the shift towards CBDCs? And what is the impact this might have on the traditional currencies? I mean, here we have a very interesting uh, dynamics because, of course, uh, uh, we have uh, CDBC has been uh, a topic uh, for quite a while now. And actually, if I look at the response, 64 of the participants believe that the recent events, including the sanction, including uh, the geopolitical events that we already talked about, it, will accelerate the adoption of uh, CDBC globally. Uh, interesting enough, there is another a very low number, 15%, so a small number, which indicates that cryptocurrency like uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or private stable coin like uh, TED can, will actually benefit from the shift towards a multipolar currency world. So this means that basically I think we are uh, also as a result of what is happening in the crypto world, I believe the CDB central banks basically will have an opportunity to push through uh, CDBC with the right regulatory framework and with the right check and balance, basically to take advantage of the technological development related to, to a blockchain, which will be used to really impress, increase the efficiency of the payment system. And here, this also has implications for reserve management. Just think about uh, the impact that technology could have, for instance, in terms of uh, uh, more efficiency when you look at the secondary uh, type of uh, currency, because uh, with, uh, with technology, with digitization, the cost of holding uh, these currencies lower, maybe you don't have to go through the US dollar, which most of the times is something that you have to go through even when you buy, for instance, uh, a Canadian dollar or a Korean one. So to, and also think about, for instance, the impact of blockchain on gold. There is a, we also ask about gold, and uh, most of the times central banks uh, find uh, difficult to deal with the cumbersome process of moving and storing gold. Actually, the application of uh, the use of digitization on gold could make it much easier for central banks to get exposure to gold or uh, for, in the, for, for other uh, asset classes in the future. So I think definitely this is something that uh, uh, will uh, remain a very important, and I think we are just at the beginning of a complete revamp of the international paying system, and is happening in front of our eyes as we speak. Thank you very much. Another, another issue that is happening in front of our very eyes as we speak is the sustainability trend. Uh, and I want to ask, both Max and also Neil, if you want to come into this as well, around the, the the shift towards how fast sustainability is embedded into reserve managers' core objectives. So, Max, what have you seen within that trend as well? Yeah, there are different forces at play. For instance, more on a macro level, it was interesting to see that in our latest results on the major concern, climate change, which was a very high uh, in the ranking last year actually fell uh, down uh, more because, uh, of course, uh, probably the whole attention has been focused on the more uh, sort of uh, war in Ukraine, U.S.-China confrontation and, and ge geopolitical tension in general. So I'm not surprised about that. So that's uh, something 
very important. Then when we ask about the impact of geopolitical concern around energy security, it's interesting that more than half believe that ultimately this will have a positive impact on the green agenda, simply because they see the link between energy security and energy transition, the two reinforce each other over the long term. Only less than 40% believe this will have a negative impact, for instance, because of the focus of investment in fossil fuel to guarantee energy security. So that's a little bit of a macro background. But when you look more granularly on the investment side, we still see central banks and reserve managers fully committed to the sustainability agenda. I already mentioned the continued growing demand for green bonds which uh, considering the fact that still the bulk of reserve are invested in fixed income, green bond is one way to, in- to, incorporate, to, in- to, to, um, to incorporate sustainability into the investment framework of reserve manager as far as uh, fixed income is concerned. But on the other end, we also see, for instance, a very good number of central banks, uh, more than 30%, thinking of adding sustainability as uh, a core objective in reserve management in addition to capital preservation, liquidity, and return. I think the sustainability trend is ongoing. It's going, of course, at different speed, depending on the region and the, and the, and the single institution concern. But uh, I believe that this is a trend that will continue and will eventually accelerate as it will become more easier to adopt ESG benchmark and uh, when more uh, green investment opportunities will be made available to reserve managers as well. Thank you very much. We are coming up to half an hour, but Neil, I do want to go to you on these new trends and how they are embedded into the reserve management ecosystem. And then we will end by talking about those the, the rapidly changing world and the sanctions and the geopolitical landscape, as Max has alluded to earlier. But Neil, over to you for the for the new trends on CBDCs and sustainability. Yes, thank you, Ellie. And it, and it is fascinating what, what this survey tells us about uh, how the focus is on these two new drivers you mentioned, given the concerns um, elsewhere and especially to the to the east of us at the moment. First of all, as Max said, on sustainability, when a third of the 30 or so central banks are saying that they've recently moved or about to to, to traditional ESG benchmarks, uh, that's pretty uh, telling and encouraging. And secondly, on the digital currencies that you that you mentioned, um, 71% uh, prefer a centralized setup. That for them seems to be a main concern at a time when uh, almost a half, 40 percent, uh, say that uh, they're expecting um, wholesale CDBCs to be launched within the next three years. Um, interesting that they would prefer a centralized setup, suggests perhaps they need certainty about a more regulated approach. And, for example, this uh, over 60 percent believing that, that it may not happen in the U.S. perhaps predates the findings or the announcements we've had uh, uh, of a more go-slow approach from the U.S. authorities wanting to see other central banks succeed first before they step in. So encouraging, but it seems to me it may be the future. Uh, but uh, given the international strains elsewhere, uh, a quick move may not yet be the uh, the appropriate thing just yet. Thank you very much. And looking to the future, I want to end this podcast looking at uh, what is there still to learn from this rapidly changing world? How do you see the war in Ukraine impacting reserve management and concerns around inflation expectations? So uh, I don't mind uh, which one of you wishes to go first, but perhaps we started with uh, Neil. So let's 
uh, end with Max. So, Neil, please do take this and then we will end with Max. Yes, certainly. Well, Max um, hinted earlier that uh, the big, you know, the big question, it's a key question, uh, is have we entered into some sort of new paradigm or have recent crises, COVID and the tragic war, uh, are they sort of in macro terms simply sharpening the forces that were already in place? And I'm thinking inflation, uh, geopolitics and concern about pulling uh, on a smaller scale, concerns about pu pulling back the, the monetary rug in terms of tightening policy. Um, it seems to me that um, I'm sort of more on the side of the latter in that these forces were already in some form bubbling under the surface. And what we're seeing now is something that brings these to the fore and critical uh, is how the authorities deal with them. We know that governments now since 2020 are prepared to uh, open the purse and spend a bit more. Uh, I doubt they will be able to quickly reverse uh, any of that, in which case how real is quantitative tightening? And secondly, uh, linked to that for central banks, the big decision for them on which they will look back either with pride uh, or grimace uh, is that how much of this inflation is cost led. Uh, for what it's worth, um, some members of the Bank of England here in the UK believe that no more than one third of the inflation liftoff we've seen uh, is from domestic forces and thereby the bulk of it is not really something they can, they can get to grips with by raising um, in interest rates. And so really that leaves extra onus on getting those balance sheets down and beginning after more than a decade to get to grips with one of the biggest risks that I believe is there, which is the difference between the haves and the have-nots uh, in terms of assets, which causes at the very least economies uh, to, to stutter. So for me, in, in a nutshell, the survey was extremely telling. Uh, the elephants in the room, if you like, uh, being at the time how to end the pandemic. This has been uh, added to now by growth concerns from uh, the war, fear of inflation, what sort is it this time next year? Uh, maybe then we'll know, who knows? And thirdly, government debt and how to, how to handle that. And I think the year ahead is going to be a fascinating time and it will be interesting to see how this survey uh, predicts uh, what's going to happen. Hopefully this year ahead, we'll, we, we've had the crises uh, already. So it'll be working out and working through the current crises. And obviously the, the war in Ukraine is still going on uh, and hopefully that will come to a resolution for Ukraine and then we can work through that. But Max, please do offer your final words around the learning from this rapidly changing world. So the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, I think they should be seen as uh, uh, two key events in the sort of changing geopolitical landscape, which has actually started already for a while. So from that perspective, I believe we are going to enter a period which we could call a geopolitical volatility, which ultimately will lead to a new eventually equilibrium. But I think at this time, this transition will be pretty long. So the key question about reserve is, does this change the role the scope and the composition of reserve. I mean, on the scope and role, there is already an ongoing debate that probably FX reserve as a percentage of global GDP have peaked in the sense that probably the end of 2021 might be remembered as the peak in the level of the foreign exchange reserve. And the driver of this, uh, of this uh, trend are multiple, including both the macroeconomic situation, but I would also add the sanction, which ultimately has also in some way created the, uh, the need for central banks to think about the complement to the reserve as a tool to intervene when needed. It could be swap agreement, we discussed about CDBC, uh, it could be other things as well. 
which are not yet uh, visible. On the other end, there is also a question of the return the, that you can generate on the reserve. We should not forget reserve manager, but sovereign institution alike, including sovereign wealth funds, come from years of very good return. These, I believe, are very difficult to be repeated over the next uh, five or ten years, given the type of environment we are moving in. But the, for me, the most important uh, development will be in the composition of reserve, and I mean composition across currency and across asset classes. Across our, our currency, I believe we are going to see this continuation or eventually an acceleration of the shift towards a multipolar world. It's not the US dollar versus RMB. I think it's US dollar, RMB, Euro, and overs. And I think we will see a much more diversified uh, composition of reserve from a currency perspective. Last Thanks. but not least, and I conclude, is about, of course, a, a, a composition across asset classes. As I mentioned, we, I don't think we are at the end of the diversification trends and the next stage for reserve manager, at least for some of them, could be alternative asset classes. Thank you, Max. There is a whole other podcast just from that final question. I can feel brewing. So I'm very pleased to have you all listening to have Neil Williams from OMPIF and Max Castelli from UBS Asset Management here to discuss these very tricky questions, which will continue on into the rest of the year and beyond. Thank you very much for listening to the OMPIF podcast. We have many more on these themes and others. Please do leave a review if you liked it or didn't. If you have any suggestions for topics that you would like us to cover, please do send those in as well. So thank you again, Neil and Max for joining and thank you for listening. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.